good morning once again. Current time is now 9 a.m. on the dot on this Wednesday, the 13th of January, 2021. And we're so very pleased to welcome you back to Community Pulse, your locally produced program here on the coronavirus pandemic here in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse live Mondays and Wednesdays from 9 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. We then upload the episodes to our website, kopn.org, kopn.org. Also, our Facebook profile, and you can find the full collection on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This morning, we have quite the distinguished guests. We're pleased to follow up on a question that arose during Monday's program about transmission. So joining us today, all the way from New Haven, Connecticut, it is Dr. Richard A. Martinello. He is of the Yale School of Medicine. First and foremost, sir, thank you so much for joining us to discuss COVID transmission today. We sincerely appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much for the invitation. Yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. Marinella, for joining us. I know that our listeners have been asking questions, and it's, it's honestly really interesting that we're at this point in the pandemic. And, uh, you know, Dr. Elizabeth Ullman and I co-host this show with me doing the Wednesday show and her doing the Monday show. And we often, you know, we've produced more than a, a, a hundred and I think we're close to 150 episodes now. And um, we had questions even about um, ways that the virus was transmitted. And so we are really ecstatic to have you. I'm going to start with some numbers like we always do, but I think that this will give you a really good picture of what's happening in our state and in our local community as we have this conversation. So um, Matthew Holloway, as all of our listeners know, is a lay person in the state of Missouri who has been actively tracking the virus in the lack of information that's coming out from our state public health department. And so uh, Matthew every night collects the data from our health departments across the country and or across the state, sorry, and brings that data together. We have um, 3,099 identified cases as of yesterday, uh, bringing our total case number to 468,743 cases identified in the state of Missouri. And so he, he did, Matthew noted that that was probably one of the lowest case numbers that we have seen in a really long time. But there's maybe some rationale behind that. Um, the CDC reports the total number of PCR tests that are administered per state. And Matthew noted that we rank in the bottom five states as, the, as far as the number of tests that were administered for that time period. So it might be the reason why we're seeing a low case number identified. We did have 104 deaths yesterday in the state, um, which is we're averaging 61 deaths per day. So yesterday's death toll was higher than normal. Um, When we look within our county here in Boone County, Missouri, the county health department reported um, 87 cases yesterday. Um, We have a positivity rate still far above what we would want to see um, within our community. So we have a 34.7% positivity rate for our test, meaning one out of every three people or more so that are testing are testing positive. So we're, we're not testing enough. And, and for our local community, we might cover this if we have just a little bit more time, but the Columbia Public School Board did vote on Monday night to bring the students back in seat. We have um, in Boone County and the Columbia Public Schools District being the largest, um, we had identified some um, metrics that if we were below 
50 cases per 10,000 in the Columbia Public School District, then we would go back in seat. We are currently at 80 cases per 10,000, but they did go ahead and decide. So Columbia Public School has been remote since um, March the 17th. <clears throat> so we're you know getting close to a full year of remote learning exclusively. So A through five is going to be four days a week. And then um, our secondary education is going to be half of the kids go Monday, Tuesday, half of the kids go Thursday, Friday. So that's what's going on within Boone County. So Dr. Mello, to utilize your vast knowledge and, and thank you again for coming on. You know, we've had listener questions. And so probably one of the first questions is just how does the virus infect a person? And I'm going to ask you questions. And as we, you know, as we bring on experts, just to let you know, you know, Sometimes we don't know, you know, like with the virus, we just don't know the answer. And sometimes we might not know the answer. And that's okay. I mean, these are questions that we're going to discuss and say, we're just not really sure yet. So I'm interested in if you can just tell us, like, how does a person get infected with the virus? And I know it seems like a very basic question. Sure, but you know it's 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 really a, a great question and su- such a fundamental one, and you know we do know that when people are infected, uh, they become contagious, and we know that they become contagious you know sometimes even before they develop symptoms, and we know that about a third of people who get infected with this virus don't even develop symptoms but can be contagious nevertheless. And so what happens with these individuals who are infected and contagious is the virus is present in their respiratory secretions. You know, their respiratory secretions include, uh, you know, their uh, saliva. They include uh, even, you know, very minute uh, droplets that can be produced just from their breathing alone. And, of course, when people talk, when, uh, you know, if we you know, raise our voice, shout, cough, or sneeze, that's developing droplets also. And those droplets are able to get to, you know, in contact with other people. And we know that this virus sticks to a protein in the body called uh, ACE2. And that protein is, is present on people's eyes. It's present in their respiratory tract. And so when those tissues come in contact with the other person's respiratory viruses, that virus can then stick to those proteins and potentially then initiate an infection in that that other person. And so when the virus is in the air and then we maybe breathe it in and it gets into our nose, what happens in that process? And and then once it's in my nose, I'm just mm-hmm. going to propose this hypothetical. Can I start spreading the virus the next time I breathe or do Mm -hmm. I need to become infected before I start spreading the virus? Yeah, so so it it has been found, and this is pretty typical for what we see with other respiratory viruses, is that, you know, once you've been exposed to somebody who is sick, if, if the virus is now in your body, it actually does take a little bit of time before uh, you potentially become contagious. You know, unfortunately, uh, you know, something that is characteristic of this virus and our human population is that 
you know, we essentially have very limited to no immunity against this virus. And that's, and that's really why it's led to this pandemic is, it, you know, it spreads from person to person. Our population, you know, has very little immunity against this virus. And so when we get exposed to it, there's a really high risk that we develop an infection ourselves. And it generally takes, you know, anywhere from about a day or two uh, to the upwards of about two weeks before we potentially uh, can become contagious after we get exposed to this, this virus. And so it takes a little bit of time. So when we think about exposure, so we know that this is respiratory virus, so it lingers in the air, or does it fall to the ground? And, and how long can it linger in the air, and how far can it go? Yeah. So... so we usually think of those respiratory droplets that we produce uh, kind of in two buckets. And so we're all very familiar with the, the large respiratory droplets. You know, these are the ones that, you know, um, you know to be a, a bit indelicate here, you know, they're the ones that we, we can see. They're the ones that, mm-hmm. that we can we feel. Talk and you it, see spit coming out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and, and so... Uh, you know, what, what has been very nicely shown, you know, is that most of those really large droplets, uh, you know, our, gravity has a big effect on them. And generally, um, you know, we think that they don't get much further than about six feet from somebody. However, you know, what has been, you know, shown also is that when people are coughing or sneezing, those large droplets even can go pretty far. They can, you know, sometimes, you know, go in the upwards of 20 to perhaps even 25 feet away from somebody. And we also know that the wind can, you know, carry even some of those larger droplets and can, you know, bring those large droplets, you know, many feet away and potentially even, you know, further. In addition to those really large droplets, we're always producing what we call small, small particle aerosols. And these are, you know, essentially a kind of a, a I don't even want to say a fine mist. You know, the, these are particles that our body, our lungs produce that are less than about five micrometers in size. And so it's, you know, very small. And they are so small that these particles can remain aloft in the air. And if we are in a room that is not well ventilated, uh, these particles are small enough that they can stay in the air for you know the upwards of an hour or potentially even longer if the if the air is really poorly being circulated. And you know what we what has been shown very early on in this pandemic uh, through some very nice you know scientific work that was supported by the National Institutes of Health is that the virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID, can be present in these particles, but also that virus can remain contagious in those particles you know, for hours. So we know our body produces these very small particle aerosols. We know that the virus can get uh, into uh, those particles, and we know that they can remain infectious uh, for even up to a few hours. And we really think you know, that uh, COVID is transmitted from one person to another, you know, primarily by res- respiratory droplets and both by these large droplets in addition to these small particle aerosols that can remain around for a long period of time. And when you say we know, can we talk a little bit about that South Korea restaurant study that 
you know, on the distance and like, how do we know? Does that make sense? Well, you know, so, so this South Korea restaurant study came out in December and, um, there's a few nice things, uh, you know, about this study and, and, um, uh, you know, I think if, if, if you imagine a you know a typical restaurant you know setting, you know what had happened, you know was that you know in, individuals came in, they were seated, uh, you know they removed their masks, ate their meals, and and left. But um, what was subsequently found was in this restaurant uh, there was somebody who was uh, found to have COVID. And then uh, they were able to identify that there was a number of people who were in the restaurant who subsequently became sick, you know, within about a week or so after after they had dined at this restaurant. Um, in South Korea, their public health abilities um, and their public health surveillance is uh, a bit different than what we have here in the United States. Uh, they actually were able to utilize a lot of uh, information that they gained, not only from contact tracing, uh, but from um, video cameras that were present. I understand, you know, outside the restaurant. So they knew the exact timings when, you know, when people went into the restaurants, they knew uh, how long they were there. Um, and what they were able to do in this uh, investigation was to reconstruct where people sat in the restaurant. And uh, they knew the exact time that the people were within the restaurant and dining. Uh, but then also a few other things. You know, one is that they, they very carefully studied um, how the air within the restaurant flowed. And what they were able to find was it flowed uh, from the, the air conditioner that was uh, present. Um, in one corner of the restaurant, uh, the air predominantly went in a, one direction to the other corner of the restaurant. And in their reconstruction of where people were sitting, they found that the contagious person was in uh, one side, kind of a, on the upstream side of the airflow. And many of those who got sick were on the downstream side of the way the air was flowing. And people who were sitting on the periphery of the restaurant and outside of that, um, you know, that draft of air that was flowing through the restaurant ended up not getting sick. And they actually went one step further. And what they did was they looked at the, the genetic information from the viruses that were um, isolated from these individual patrons of the restaurant. And yeah, what I'm they glad you're talking about this because I think people could say, well, you know, yes, they were exposed, but maybe they could have yeah. gotten exposed somewhere else, right? right? Like maybe, so, maybe it wasn't just the restaurant, right? So, so what they what they found when they analyzed the genes from the virus was that it was the exact same strain of the virus that people were infected with, and so it was actually very convincing uh, data to show uh, <clears throat> that. You know, one, you know, something we already knew, uh, that being indoors without your mask uh, is potentially, a, a, you know, a risk. And, you know, it, they convincingly showed uh, how the virus got from the person who was already known to be infected to the other person's uh, dining in the restaurant. But, but the other thing that was very important in this study was that there was a, a I, I believe it was about, you know, 24, 25 feet between uh, the, the person who was contagious and those who ended up getting sick. And 
the uh, investigators, you know, very nicely showed that not only was it the same exact strain of the virus um, showing that the person who was contagious infected uh, the other people in the restaurant, um, but also in studying the airflow in the restaurant, they very convincingly showed that the respiratory droplets from that contagious person were very likely carried all the way over to the other side of the, the restaurant um, and you know, subsequently infected the other diners there. So then when we go under the pretense that we have been operating under, which is this, you know, six feet of distance, 15 minutes of exposure, what does the study tell us? Well, I, I, I think it tells that, that it's, you know, more complex than this. And, you know, we, we, we've gotten quite a few questions about, you know, about six feet itself. And, you know, I, th- I think everybody realizes that there's nothing, you know, magical, you know, that happens at six feet. And it's not as if you're uh, at risk if you're within six feet and you're perfectly safe outside of six feet. You know, we know that these droplets can go further than that. And this restaurant study, you know, really illustrates that nicely that even, you know, over 20 feet, those droplets can be carried by that, uh, the drafty air that was flowing through that restaurant. And, but from a public health standpoint and, you know, how we communicate and help to guide uh, people to keep themselves safe, uh, sometimes it makes it easier to make things a little more black and white. And uh, six feet was chosen, you know, very early on because of, uh, you know, we've routinely used that in the healthcare, you know, setting, um, you know, for many decades uh, to help protect our healthcare staff who are caring for patients who may have other respiratory viruses. And so public health uh, adopted that messaging very early on. Um, it, it is still a very reasonable uh uh, uh, you know, I think message, a very reasonable way to protect yourself uh, by keep trying to keep at least six feet away from, from other people. But of course, uh, it's not perfect. And, um, you know, sometimes depending on how the air is flowing and uh, what the ventilation is otherwise like in, in a room where you may be, um, you know, even being more than six feet away, you can still be potentially at risk. So, when we talk about the airflow, um, and you know, obviously this was spread by an air conditioner system that was blowing in a certain direction. So we're about to bring our Columbia Public School kids back in, and I know that the school district has been putting in air filtration systems to help pre- prevent the spread indoors. So I'm curious what your knowledge or thoughts are on air filtration systems, or even something as simple as a fan, um, mm-hmm. in helping to reduce the spread. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I think that the air filters can be very helpful. Um, you know, in general, uh, ventilation systems, you know, within schools or you know, office buildings, are really set to ensure people's comfort, and they haven't really been designed in a way to help protect people from uh, in the spread of infection. And it can be very difficult and extraordinarily costly uh, to uh, upgrade a ventilation system within a school to um, allow more air to be flowing, more fresh air to be coming in, and higher degrees of filtration. Um, But I think what's been pretty well shown is that um, 
the ventilation can be augmented and uh, a classroom you know, made more safe by uh, keeping windows open you know, when possible uh, to allow more fresh air to come in. Um, by using portable uh, filters, uh, and, and in particular um, HEPA filters that are, are portable uh, to help to augment how air within the room is being filtered. Um, fans can also be used to help circulate air within a room, although you know the restaurant study that we had just talked about I think is a, a cautionary tale that we want to make sure that we're not just blowing air around from somebody who you know who may be contagious and so we I think we need to be careful with how fans may be placed to ensure that they're um, doing what we want to do in you know mixing air around and helping to you know mix fresh air or exhaust. Um, uh, uh, you know, other air, you know, from the room and not just, uh, you know, blowing infectious particles, uh, you know, around. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think there are things that can be done to make classrooms, you know, more safe. But, you know, just as the six feet um, uh, guidance that's been provided is not black and white, you know, there, there's no perfect solution to make a classroom or an office setting absolutely safe. But there are things that can be done, as we've discussed, that can make it a more safe environment. And you brought up, you know, that the virus can remain alive for a couple hours. And, you know, the question has been posed, like, how long does it linger in enclosed spaces? And, you know, is it safer really to go to the grocery store first thing in the morning when the store opens? Um, because maybe there'll be less particles lingering in the air um, that you would be exposed to. And then I want to take it twofold in that, you know, some people are still wiping down their groceries as they're bringing them in the house. So, like, what what are the real risks and places? Like, are things still remaining living on those groceries we're bringing in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think as, as far as the groceries, you know, we do not think that surfaces play a very large role in how this virus is transmitted. Now, that said, you know, we, we, we don't know perfectly, you know, that that's the case. And it is possible that if something, you know, a, a surface was recently contaminated, you know, by some of those large droplets, uh, that a contagious person uh, was uh, coughing, let's say, and somebody comes up, touches it with their hand, you know, let's say it's on a doorknob, they touch that doorknob with their hand, and now they have virus on their fingers, it is very possible, we think, that if the, the, the individual then touches their eyes or touches their nose, that the virus can get in, you know, get into their eyes, get into their nose and cause an infection, you know, that way. Um, that said, in general, you know, wiping down, you know, groceries beyond, you know, just, you know, rinsing off, of course, you know, fruits and vegetables can be, um, you know, helpful. Uh, but beyond that, uh, it, it's not clear how beneficial it is. And certainly, I think we want to avoid, um actions that could potentially increase other risks. You know, we wouldn't want to use any chemical disinfectants um, on our food. And so if, if you do rinse off or clean your food, you know, just some simple, you know, water or a little bit of just, you know, soap if you wish. Um, but make sure you rinse rinse it off very effectively. I would not put any any chemicals on food that you're going to eat to try to disinfect it. Um, 
so how how long you know can a virus remain viable in the air? You know, we had talked about um, you know up to about three hours, but it's really dependent on uh, how well ventilated a room is. And we know that rooms that are better ventilated. Um, the number of uh, particles that may contain a uh, virus that's contagious uh, will greatly diminish quickly if the ventilation in that room is, is better, um, but also if there's filtration. You know, we know that the filtration can be effective. And, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, most of our, you know, office buildings, classrooms, you know, they've never been designed with filters to help to get rid of, you know, things as uh, small as viruses. Um, and so sometimes bringing in some, some uh, portable filters that are, um, you know, have high efficiency uh, particle filtration capabilities uh, can be helpful to augment um, the ability for ventilation uh, to clear, you know, any virus that may be present in the room. I want to switch over to Connecticut. You know, your state has been doing... Um, things in what we would say is the public health right way and, and really leading the way in positivity rates being low and um, just vaccine um, distribution consideration. So it sounds like you're on the vaccine task force appointed by the governor. Can you tell us what that experience has been like and challenges and successes that you guys have had so far sure. as we consider this vaccine distribution? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, th- I think you know, we've been, um, I, I think we've been very much set up for success. And what, you know, what I, what I mean by that is, you know, in Connecticut, you know, I think in general, you know, our population is very receptive, uh, to, um, you know, using science to try to guide our public health actions. Uh, they're very, um, uh, you know, receptive to, you know, vaccination in general. And so certainly that was very helpful. But I think some of the real key pieces to our successes otherwise have been, you know, one of leadership and then from um, our governor, you know, Ned Lamont, uh, and then also, you know, leadership within our our healthcare institutions across the state and their willingness to really partner with um, the governor's office to help to ensure uh, that uh, we're all being very proactive in how we're uh, working to set up our distribution systems for vaccination. And so uh, between that leadership, um, the effectiveness in, in working together, and then also being proactive in our communications, I think uh, that has all been, been very helpful. And who are you guys prioritizing as getting the vaccine and has that changed in the last mm-hmm. couple of days even? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and we, we've started off with uh, those who are uh, working in healthcare, and in particular those who are uh, working uh, with patients uh, who um, may have COVID as our top priority. Mm-hmm. And our other top priority was our uh, residents of nursing facilities across the state. And, you know, Connecticut's a bit of a small state, uh, but we do have over 200 um, nursing facilities. And so very early on, um, there's a, a great deal of effort made to ensure that uh, both people working at those facilities were vaccinated in addition to the residents of the facilities. Um, now at this time, we're getting ready to um, make a shift and broaden um, who we're uh, involving in vaccination. And uh, we are moving to... Uh, 
uh, open it up to people who are uh, 75 years of age and older, and uh, also expanding that to 65 years of age and older. And we're starting to work on uh, thinking about how we can identify and and vaccinate uh, those who have um, you know, one or two health conditions that put them at higher risk to have more severe uh, disease due to COVID. And for the listeners, just to help them to understand why I asked the question, you know, the CDC has guidelines on who should receive the vaccine first, but it's very much state dependent on mm-hmm. um, their decisions on on who and how accessible the vaccine is and when. Um, so, you know, in Missouri, we don't have a statewide mask mandate. We're one of the few states that are left without it. Um, I would say a majority of our state is not covered by a mask mandate locally, that it, it is really um, personal choice and freedom on whether individuals wear masks within, um, you know, businesses, um, even schools sometimes in, in our state. So as you, you know, reflect on what's going on in this pandemic in these last two minutes, thoughts about what we need to do and where we need to go next? You know, I, I think consistency in um and clear communications are really a critical piece here. You know, we need uh, leadership and really political leadership that can be honest, truthful, and you know, clear about what we need to be doing. And I think uh, when we have mixed messages that are coming out, um, you know, bo- uh, both in terms of you know what the scientific facts are and what the public health needs are, I think that that makes it very confusing for people. And, uh, you know, of course, we have a tendency to, you know, think a bit in the, the short term and think about what's easier, you know, for us. Um, but unfortunately, and when we hear those mixed messages, sometimes we uh, pick the side that we think is easiest. And um, unfortunately, that's not always the right answer. And, you know, I think as we move into the future, ensuring that we have uh, a a clear voice with consistent messaging, uh, with transparency about what we know, you know, what we don't know, and what we need to do to not only keep ourselves safe, but also our, you know, our families from getting sick. I think that that is so important. And, uh, you know, I think that's some of the challenge uh, that we have going forward into the future is to try to, you know, work toward, toward that goal. Dr. Martinellis, thank you so much. Speaking from the Yale School of Public Health, we really appreciate you joining us for Community Pulse this morning. Uh, Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Ginny. That was public health advocate Ginny Chadwick, and she was interviewing Dr. Richard Martinello of the Yale University School of Public Health about COVID transmission, how it occurs. And thank you very much to our host of Community Pulse, uh, Ginny, for yet another informative discussion. If you happen to miss any of that discussion, as a reminder, you can find it on our website, kopn.org now. And it will also be uploaded to our Facebook profile and Spotify and Apple podcasts later today. We wanted to follow up on some information uh, arising from a show we did seven days ago, as well as the show that we did on Monday, of course. We have two very important websites for you as we now move into the vaccination phase of this pandemic. The first, covidvaccine.mo.gov, covidvaccine.mo.gov. 
details the state's plans for rolling out the COVID vaccine. And of course, if you're local here in Colombia, you can go to como.gov slash COVID vaccine. That is como.gov slash COVID vaccine. And both of these websites, there's new information uploaded, uh, uploaded daily. It can be uh, a little bit of legwork to navigate them, but they're very, very much uh, worth your time. And a point of emphasis about the Como site, como.gov slash COVID vaccine, you can sign up. It only takes a couple of minutes for a newsletter and updates about how the vaccine will become available right here in Colombia. So thank you very much for joining us once again for Community Pulse. The next time that we will be coming to you live, will be Monday at 9 a.m. Until that time, from all of your friends and neighbors here at your listener-supported and volunteer-operated community radio station, we wish you a pleasant weekend. Please stay safe and please stay informed.